post there, but <clears throat> part of coming to God is submitting to the mystery that is God. Because as God is God, I have to come to the reality that I'm not. And that's sometimes the harder reality is not to admit God is God, but to admit that I'm powerless and I'm not. And so we're submitting to the great mystery that is God, that He is orchestrating and that He is weaving and that He's doing things in such a way that would sometimes appear that He's not even there. But as you've been faithful with God and you get a little history under your belt serving Him, you look back and you go, wow, look where I came from. There's got to be a God. Because how could I have got from there to here without even knowing how I got from there to here? Remember that poem, The Footprints? <laughs> Remember that? And they said, oh, there was two sets, but now there was none. Right? I submit to you there was two lines where Jesus was dragging us many times. <laughs> two hills dug in the sand. Should be called the two train track looking lines in the sand when Jesus had to drag me because I was so hard-headed and stubborn I wouldn't let go of the thing that was going to kill me. That we're surrendering to the mystery that is God. And it's hard for the Western mind because we got to know everything, don't we? My goodness, I could ask you all any question right now, and the curiosity in this information age would make you pull your phone out and begin to Google the answer immediately. We've got to know everything. This is the information age, and God is saying, no, it's the mysterious age. It's the age in which we are submitting to, to where we're okay with not knowing where God wants to take us in our life. Because that is the truest expression of faith. If I can go with God without knowing where he's taking me. See, many times we want information. And God's saying, I'm looking for transformation. See, that's the problem with, with the church is we've got a head full of knowledge and a belly full of sin. a head full of knowledge of all this scripture and we walk around defeated and victorious less, and the whole time God's right there and he's, and he's just wanting that info that you've got up here to drop about 12 inches and get right here and to settle in and begin to shape and form you into the image of God in which you are originally created to be in. Some people make a big deal of the sin nature. I want to tell you, before there was a sin nature, you were made in the image of God. That's your original nature. The sin nature is fleeting and it's passing away. The eternal thing on the inside of you, if you will allow God to work through you, is growing and stretching you into the image of God. You're going to look so much like Christ when you get to heaven that it says you're going to look like He looks. You're going to be as He is. So much so that when John, who walked three and a half years with Jesus, when he gets, gets the vision in the Revelation, and he sees this other figure, he begins to worship. And he says, whoa, 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 don't worship me, I'm just like you. 
John gets a picture of what the future hymn is going to look like. And it looks so glorious, he begins to worship it. And the figure has to say, stop worshiping me. I'm not Jesus. I just look like him. Is that okay? Or is that... Is that I ain't getting way out. If I'm getting too far out there, y'all just come get me, okay? Call the paddy wagon. I'm just telling you, man, God's got such great things for you. And I've just, I've staked my life on this. My whole life has been built upon this reality that God is so, so good that He's the best thing I could tell you about. It'd be great if you found sobriety. But if you don't find Jesus and find sobriety, then you've lost out altogether. It'd be great that you get rid of this issue that seems to keep plaguing you. But if you get rid of the issue and don't find Jesus, then you really didn't find anything to begin with. That this is how great Jesus is. And the reason why we're not seeing transformation in our city and in this age is because we're not sold on the fact that Jesus is the greatest treasure in the earth that we could ever possess or ever own. That is the problem in the church. Is that Jesus is really this good. And I don't have to oversell it or lie about it. Matter of fact, I could never do it enough justice to tell you how good God is. I could spend the rest of my days bragging on Jesus and it wouldn't even come to the foothills of the mountain of God and His glory and what He is and what He's about. And if you're looking for self-help and an improvement seminar, you come to the wrong place because I'm just as messed up as you are. But this one thing I know, <laughs> I once was blind, and now I see. I don't know the particulars of why this, or who sinned, and who did this, and why this, and why that. The one thing I know is that I was blind, and now I'm seeing because the grace of God has broke into my life and done something in my heart that is supernatural that can't be explained. That I could go from a God-hating, hippie wannabe guy to a God-loving, God-honoring uh, a man who wants to please the Lord, uh, it can only be explained because the sovereign grace of God breaking into my life because I bowed a knee to Jesus and said, Jesus, come in and take this thing. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. And when you begin to note the period in your life when you seem to be going backwards, it'll be the moment that it quit being about him. And that's where doubt entered in and confusion and that's where it entered in. When you were in the simplicity of Christ and his love, that's when things were at its best. But when you begin to leave that and refusing to walk in mystery, but wanting to walk in answers and knowledge. See, this was the great sin of Adam and Eve is that they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just in that moment that they then knew what evil was. It was that in that moment they would then begin to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil separate from relationship with God. That they would define goodness and that they would define and that they were seeking knowledge more than life. That they wanted the good from the life, but not the life of the good. They 
I wanted to pull the good from the life. Say, I can do this without you, Jesus. I just need the good. Instead of taking the life of the good and allowing that life to manifest in relationship and produce what God always wanted to produce. A people that would live forever with Him and love Him and enjoy Him for the rest of their days. Where Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life. That they may know Him and the one in whom He is sent. <laughs> that eternal life is defined as relationship, not as streets of gold or burning embers somewhere. That eternal life is treasuring Jesus and walking in relationship from Him. Not dodging hell or trying to do enough good works to get to heaven. And that's where we've missed it. We've sold a generation to be very scared of hell instead of treasuring Jesus. There's nothing about me that... Okay, this is going to sound really weird. Are you all okay with this? I'm just going for it. So whatever happened. Blame it on the anointing, okay? If I stand before God... And he said, you didn't make it, I would be okay with that. Because I understand who I am without him. I find it funny in Matthew 7 where these people are groveling before Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I don't know you. I said, well, we did mighty works. We did great things. Who would stand in front of Jesus who hung naked on a cross and brag about what they did? That's, I just can't even. You're going to look at the nail scars and, and say, well, look what I did. You do know me. Oh, man, when you truly know Jesus... You'll agree with his judgments. And if he does let you in, you say, thank God, that was all of grace. And here's the cool thing is you don't have to wonder if you're going to make it or not. The Bible says that he'll give you his spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. And then he gives you his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment for the glorious body that is to come. Jesus is just good, man. He is just so good. Well, I better get to the sermon or you guys will be mad barbecuing today because I kept you too long. So, I want to talk to you today about a divine stretching, something that God wants to do to each and one of us. Um, have you all noticed today every article of clothing seems to be like brandishing that it stretches with you as you move? So, like, you used to have to wear tight clothing. Like, I grew up, like, I had this little, like, western phase I went through. And I owned, like, one pair of Wranglers. And the tighter, the better, right? And this is before they had, I guess, this stretch jean technology. 
And so, man, you get those bad boys out of the dryer and put those on, and you can even bend your knees. You look like a newborn baby deer walking around out there. You'd have to, for 20 minutes, get them to where you could even get a stretch going on. That was terrible. Why anybody wanted to do that? It was just terrible. The last church I was at, we always would have plays, and there's this bigger gentleman who wanted to be in the play. And you know, those were just sewed up bed sheets that they made into like Jerusalem garb or whatever. So there's no stretch to a bed sheet, I'm just going to tell you. So we finally found one. I got on one end, another guy got on another. And we got this brown biblical outfit on this guy, finally. And he turned around and said, how do I look? I said, man, you look like a russet potato, man. I better move on, man. This is getting too out there. So, man, they need strict technology and everything now. See, the good thing about stretching is, is that it can hold more than it's supposed to. See, when we're able to be stretched, there's something that God can do in us that goes above and beyond the capacity that we presently have. And this is where Jesus is trying to take us as a people and as a church. Is to go past what is comfortable and to enter into the realm where we're foolish enough to say, God, we need more and we want more and allow a stretching to begin to take place where there's more space for God to occupy in our life. See, in the stretching on the inside of us, God is bringing something to maturity. That this is the grand issue of God. That God doesn't care about your outwardly obedience, your outward looks. God cares about the nature of your heart. See, Christianity is about becoming not about imitating. Other world religions, we'll just use Islam, is not worried how you feel about doing your prayers five times a day. It's just worried that you do them. So your heart can be distant, but you can do the prayer and be okay. It's not worried how you feel as a woman wearing a hajib. It just says, put on the hajib. I don't care how you feel about it. Jesus is completely the opposite. He says, I don't care what you're trying to do on the outside of your life with some form of obedience. I want to know what is going on in the nature of your heart. Because if I've got your heart, you won't just be being obedient. You'll just be the thing that I've created to be. And you'll begin to act out of obedience from a heart that is regenerated by the Spirit of God. Amen. 
So it's not that we uh, just need to know something. But Jesus is trying to get us to become something. To actually be the thing that we're supposed to be. That it would be a transformation of nature personally within our hearts. And so Jesus' question about his methods, all the time throughout Scripture, he's questioned about his methods. I would think if I had Jesus in a room, I would think I would ask him like cool things, you know? But it seems that everybody that was around Jesus always asked him dumb things. Jesus, why'd you heal that guy on Saturday? Hmm. Uh, Jesus, I noticed you didn't do the proper hand-washing rituals before you ate. There's something suspicious about you. It's like people's always asking the wrong questions. And you ever notice that Jesus doesn't answer them? That he just asks them a question that then answers their question and makes them self-reflect on the nature of their heart and where they're actually at with God? So this is what happens. Now this is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in all three of them. But, so, so this is vitally important. Now, all three authors found this to be paramount to put this in here. So Luke chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus is asked a question about fasting. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. <laughs> I thought Tom would get an amen there. Yeah. <laughs> so they've got this issue that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. So when we approach things like this, it seems that Jesus is doing this just revolutionary thing. But actually, Jesus is really not doing anything revolutionary. He's just getting people back to God's original intent and what God's original plan for man was. Did you know there's only one time in the Old Testament where fasting was required? One day, the Day of Atonement. But everybody in Jesus' day had to really pump themselves up religiously, and they would fast often. And not only would they fast, they would make sure they were really sad about it. So somebody might ask, why the long face? Oh, <laughs> I'm fasting. <laughs> Didn't you know? <laughs> Didn't you know how godly I was? Yeah, I'm fasting. <laughs> so Jesus comes in, and him and his disciples are hanging out, having fun, <laughs> have a smile on their face. Oh, you must not be very godly. <laughs> you're eating and drinking. <laughs> and you're happy about it. Something's wrong here. <laughs> this can't be the Son of God. He's too happy. He's in too good a mood. The God's got to be mad and angry and upset. This can't be right. So this is their beef with Jesus. And they're asking that 
disciples of John and these Pharisees, they're fasting all the time. And Jesus, you don't seem to be sad enough. But Jesus is doing a new thing. But as Jesus is doing a new thing, he's really not doing a new thing. He's actually doing an old thing. Just at this point in time, the old thing is now a new thing. That's why in every generation that experiences revival, they discover something old, not dream up something new. It's that the old thing got covered up with traditions and other things of men, and so it took a while to shovel all those old things off to get back to the truth that God originally had for his people. So in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, because they're saying John the Baptist and the Pharisees are the standard. What, what about you here? Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I get this next statement. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Whew. Raise your hand if you're in the kingdom of heaven. I submit to you, you're greater than John. That is the work that Jesus has done. You almost shudder to even think about it, don't you? That's the work that Jesus has done. And John himself even goes through a moment of doubt when he sees Jesus work and sees what he's doing. And John, while he's in prison, sends out his followers to go ask Jesus if he's the one or do we look for another. Now remember, John's the same guy that baptized him and said, I'm not worthy to even latch your sandal. I can't even baptize you. And then baptizes him uh, the Spirit descends like a dove. The voice of the Father comes and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. All this stuff's going on. And then John even says, i got to decrease, and this guy's got to increase. And now John's baffled and wondering if he's even the one. And Jesus says this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That what Jesus is doing is putting a stop to some things that are old yet in reality going back to an older thing that is originally in the intents and heart of God. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, these wedding feasts that Jesus is always trying to compare his relationship with his people to this wedding feast. And weddings were the time in Jewish culture and customs when you weren't able to fast. It was the time when nobody fasted. Matter of fact, you couldn't even go to a wedding feast and be sad. They would kick you out. 
and say, you don't understand what's going on here. This is a great party that we're having, putting together two things that were separate and bringing them into one once again. So Jesus is pointing us to this reality of two becoming one flesh, just like is mentioned in John 14, 20. I will be in you, you will be in me, and I will be in the Father. That God is bringing two separate entities together as one flesh. And this is what Jesus is doing, not as a new work, but as the work of the original intentions of the Father from eternity past. These wedding feasts involve seven days of festivity. And not one person was permitted to fast or engage in acts of mourning or even difficult labor during a wedding feast. So Jesus makes an analogy about this similar inappropriateness of fasting in his own time. Verse 36, he also told a parable, no one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And the one who puts new wine into old wineskins, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. See, older clothes had already shrunk from being in the washing process. So if you put a new patch of a new garment on something that has not been washed, when it begins to shrink, it will pull from the seams and the stitches and begin to pull away from the thing that it was sewn to. Um, concerning the old wineskins, if an old wineskin had already uh, been subjugated to the process of fermentation, thus gases begin to develop as the would begin to bacteria begin to feed on sugar, and this process would begin to start. Uh, they had already been stretched to a certain capacity, and so when they were empty, if you put new in again, that process would stretch it back out to where it was, and then a little further, and that wine skin would begin to bust. It would reach its limit, and it would break. Now, there wasn't a distillation process during this time, okay? So the alcohol that these guys are drinking is of a very low percentage, okay? And most of the time, it's mixed with water to stretch it out, okay? So don't leave out of here and say, I'm going to fill up my wine skin. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> Come on now. Let me just teach you something, okay? <laughs> don't look for an out. Now, verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. Have you ever, ever heard anybody go to a fancy restaurant, ask for a wine list and say, I want your 2019, sir. He's saying, no, what's the oldest? What's down in the cellar with cobwebs on it? Because this is a special occasion. 
So it seems that there's something different here is that the old has its place and is cherished, but there's got to be a place for the new to begin to happen so that that process can begin to start all over again. Okay? Because after having the old, how many of you know it's hard to get something new when you've been so happy with the old? That sometimes we can miss what God wants to do in our life today because of the good thing He did in our life yesterday and a refusal to leave that yesterday behind and step into the new thing that God would have for us. So we stay put with the old, which we consider good, but we miss out on the new that God is trying to do. And when we stay in the old and don't step into the new thing God would have us to do, when the new gets poured into something content on the old, they begin to swell to capacity and burst are you with me that Jesus is indicating while the religious people are objecting to the joy of Jesus' disciples not because it's wrong but just because it's new I don't like that why is God in it I don't care it's new But God's in it. It's new. No thanks. Don't got any time for it. I'm sipping on the old stuff back here, brother. Back when it was good. Yeah, it was so good that it lost the next generation. Now I'm getting an attitude. Brave for me. Help me, Lord. I'm getting the flesh. Uh, so the most common interpretation of this, what I think is completely wrong, is that Jesus is showing the superiority of his teaching and he's rejecting the Pharisees' approach to religion altogether. And it's not that Jesus is saying, old is bad, new is good. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. There's a lot of old things that are awesome, that are great, that should be cherished and should be honored but not at the expense of stepping into the new thing in the new season that God would have for our life. Because if we don't step into the new season without leaving the baggage of the old behind, then when God begins to pour out the new wine, we're going to bust and burst and not be able to carry the thing that God would have us to carry. Uh, because that process has got to start over again. Just like receiving anything new from God is the process of fermentation begins to start. Have you ever gotten a word from God and it not make sense? But you feel pregnant with something. And you start to swell. And all you can think about is that word. Or that promise. Or that thing God's put in your heart and put in your life. And you begin to swell up. For too long, you look like my wife walking around here. 
Well, she's pregnant. I think it's okay to say that. But Because when God speaks words, it's not just words, it's life. It's life. There's no way to get a word from God and not get impregnated. Unless you just don't receive it. So when you're sitting under the word and you're hearing the word and God's beginning to speak some things to you, there's this awkward process of stretching to where God is trying to get you not just to know that word and to trust that word, but begin develop the character and the capacity to walk that word out and not just walk in the word, but become the thing that God is trying to create you to be. Because if God just releases you into your destiny without preparing you for it, you will be unauthentic. You'll be, uh, un- what did I say? Uh, unauthentic. You won't be unique in your walk. It won't be who you are. It'll be something that you do. And then you'll begin to worship it because it's something that you do that makes you feel good, but yet it's not who you are. So then everything becomes a a performance because it's not been allowed to ferment and stretch and get to its full capacity and hit every fiber and every ounce of your being and stretch you into the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. This is the place where God would have us to go. To be stretched. So Jesus isn't rejecting their paradigm. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, 1-4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, it's not that the Pharisees are too Jewish to Jesus. It's that they're not Jewish enough. Because a true Jew doesn't just hear. They become and obey and walk in the thing that God has for them to do. That's why Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Also, all, both of the, I think all three of the Gospels, if I'm not mistaken, the synoptic ones, start out with a genealogy. Linking Adam and King David and everybody all the way to Jesus. Why would a Gospel start that way? Because the writer wants the hearers to know that this isn't just some weird new thing God's doing. This was God's plan tied all the way before the foundations of the earth involved in Adam and his failure. So Jesus isn't saying necessarily something new. He's saying there's something old here that's going to seem new because what you've been embracing is actually old but not old is what I have. So this parable isn't about creating new structures or institutions. 
but it's about people who are willing to receive the teaching about what God is doing now. It's about making a people ready to be flexible enough to leave this season behind and to step into a new season that is unknown and we don't know what's going to happen to receive the new wine and be a new wine skin that's not set in our old ways, but that is open to the new thing God is doing so that when that fermentation process begins to happen, it gets in every fiber and we're able to get it in every part of our being and walk in that thing as God has called us to. So God isn't saying scrap patterns and do it this way or do that or have a laser light show and smoke. He's not saying that. He's just saying, you know what? Why don't you get some daily bread and quit feeding off that old moldy bread from 10 years ago? How about you try to win somebody to Christ today and quit looking back at 20 years ago when you did that that one time? He's saying, how about you let go of, of maybe the alcohol and you let go of the weed and you let go of the things that are, that are holding you back because they might be lawful for you, but they're not helpful for you. Not in the new season that God wants to take you into. There's not room for that and God. I didn't think I'd get any claps on that. That's all right. So this new thing, God's bubbling inside of us. He's stretching us. Because the whole process of fermentation is something new becoming old. In other words, the new thing has to be brought into maturity to the completed thing. So God says, I'm doing a new thing that I'm going to complete in your life to its maturity. But I need a new wine skin that is open for whatever I want to do in this season of your life. Are you with me? So what's the new wine that God's pouring into your life at this moment? Are you flexible like a new wine skin in order to receive it? Without scorning the old thing, having a bad attitude about that, but yet being open to the new thing and allowing God to stretch you. Allowing God to make you uncomfortable. Because there's almost only so much room. And God requires more room and flexibility for the stretching He wants to do in this season of your life. Closing with this. First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, there's a man named Jabez, and he gets his name because he caused his mother great pain when he was born. And Jabez by name means that he, make, he maketh sorrowful. How'd you like to have that name? He makes sorrowful. So every time he hears his name, he's reminded of an identity that was given to him, but is not his true identity being made in the image of God. So he's always being reminded, even just his namesake, it's just telling him, he makes sorrowful. But this Jabez gets a glimpse of God. <laughs> he gets a glimpse of God. 
And he gets tired of this old label that's been put on him. He gets tired of saying, God, I don't want to be the one that makes people sorrowful. I'm over that. God, I'm going to be bold enough to say this prayer without any goodness of backing me up, without anything other than, than just me coming to you and you being good and me being humble enough just to come to you and know that I need help. And Jabez, it says, called upon the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me, that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain and the Bible says and God granted him what he asked some of you in the middle of your pain and your junk and your garbage you need to get up to the front of this church right now and you need to lift your hands and say God stretch me God get me ready for the new thing you want to do in this city and in this church God get me ready Get me ready, God. If that's you, you're ready for the new wine and you want to get stretched. Don't come up here playing games with God, but if you're ready, you get down here. You lift your hands to heaven. Don't think about it. You've been thinking too long. Get out of your head. Get into your heart. <laughs>